Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Speaking of the coronavirus, let's take a look at the number of cases in Wisconsin. 3% of patients tested positive out of all of the tests reported today. That's slightly up from yesterday, which had sitting around 2%, but still good compared to weeks past. We're going to do a quarantini, a martini tonight for those people looking to have some fun. This after Mayor Baird announced bars and restaurants can reopen. We're raring to go. I know that a lot of restaurants are scratching their heads. There's been an abrupt shift in news coverage over the last two weeks, from COVID-19 to nationwide protests about police brutality and racial inequality. But even though the coronavirus has all but disappeared from public conversation, epidemiologists say it's far from gone from public life. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning, Amanda. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, June 9th, and today we're taking you through where things stand in Wisconsin when it comes to COVID-19. Remember COVID-19? We used to talk about that a little bit. (laughs) That used to be the only topic of conversation, Brian. I know when things really hit here in mid-March, we put aside a lot of the work we had been doing on other stories to focus exclusively on COVID-19 because that was affecting people in the biggest way possible when things were shutting down and again when things were reopening. But over the last few weeks, a lot of that has shifted because of the protests, and that's been a really big focal point in our news coverage and in public conversation. The issue is that COVID-19 is still very much in our lives. It's still in that public domain. It's still affecting us. It's still able to spread. So that's why we thought today we'd take some time to go through what's been going on over the last few weeks with COVID-19 that you might have missed in the news. Well, you know, I have to say, Amanda, it's it's a very strange time because we're seeing things happen simultaneously. On the one hand, there are all of these signs of things that are reopening, of uh, of things that are easing in terms of the number of positive or percentage of positive tests. Some of the metrics are going in the, in the in the proper direction. And on the other hand, we're hearing about major things still canceling, like Summerfest and the State Fair. And you still see a very slow and gradual shift towards sort of life returning back to what it once was, not an immediate shift. And one of the examples of that right off the bat is the city of Milwaukee, which has been one of the last to open bars and restaurants in the state. Finally announced last week, Mayor Barrett announced that bars and restaurants could open, but even many of those are still closed. And and uh, it sounds like they weren't 
really prepared for that announcement. Yeah, the announcement was pretty sudden, uh, as you heard at the beginning of the episode from one restaurant owner. It did leave a lot of restaurant owners scratching their heads going, why is this decision being made now? Um, There are limitations to how these restaurants can open. They can only be at 25% capacity. So it takes time to figure out how you can open and still meet the city rules, still meet CDC guidelines and make sure people stay safe because it's in the business owner's interest for people to stay safe because no one wants to experience a shutdown again. So for a lot of these restaurant owners, they said, you know, getting that announcement on a Thursday ahead of what could have been a busy weekend just wasn't enough time. So even today on Tuesday, a lot of them are still closed. They're shooting for maybe reopening next week. And a lot of restaurant owners released statements taking issue with the timing of that announcement, saying they felt like it was a method of distraction from the protests, and uh, they did not at all support that idea. Now, what gets lost in the conversation is ahead of Mayor Barrett's announcement, you had several restaurant owners that were threatening to go ahead and reopen over the weekend anyway, regardless of what the city said. So um, there are thoughts that the announcement that restaurants could reopen was to kind of avoid a, a turf war with the city's business owners. So we can't really speak to the motivation of what happened, but we do have restaurant owners who are questioning that right now. We've been talking about this, Amanda, for months, and we've been doing it from our uh, home working locations. We are not even allowed into the building at Fox 6 News without some sort of prior authorization because there is such care being taken to ensure that the the studio does not become uh, infected with the virus, uh, because that, of course, could be a real problem if you end up with master control uh, having an infection and uh, or someone who is infected and then suddenly uh, the station's unable to to broadcast or get its signal out. So the uh, WITI has been extremely careful about how to proceed in doing the news during this whole thing. So we've been doing this for months and we are still uh, at at home, and I'm under a blanket because the sound is better in a podcast, and <laughs> it's sort of an unusual thing. We thought this was going to maybe last a couple of weeks. It's lasted several months, and for the moment, we don't really know when that's going to change, but so much of what's happened over these past few months has been, uh, we've seen it, we've covered it. Politics has really become a big part of this, and emotions become a big part of it, but at the base, as investigative reporters, we're always looking at metrics, What do the numbers say? So really, I feel like now might be a good time to look at where are we? Because what do the numbers say with regard to testing and infections? And and where are we, for instance, with the Badger bounce back plan, which was really supposed to be the guidepost as to when things could get back to normal? Right. So let's start with the Badger bounce back plan. And for people who aren't familiar, uh, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services uses what's called gating criteria to determine when things are safe to reopen in Wisconsin. Now, a state Supreme Court ruling uh, allowed things to reopen overnight, but we're still getting updates on where Wisconsin is with the gating criteria. So there are six key metrics. I'm going to go through them really quickly. And uh, when we're in the green for those metrics, that means we've met them. And when we're in the red, it means we're not quite there yet. So the metrics are downward trajectory of influenza-like illnesses reported within a 14-day period. 
The second metric is a downward trajectory of COVID-like symptoms reported within a 14-day period. That third one is downward trajectory of positive tests as a percent of total tests. So not just, hey, we have 300 positive tests. What's the percentage? So 3%, for example, of the tests coming back as positive. Uh, Metric number four is 95% of hospitals say they can treat all patients without going into crisis standards of care. That's when they're in those situations where they're determining You know, we have two people who need a ventilator. We have one ventilator left. Who gets the ventilator? Metric number five is 95% of all hospitals affirm they have been arranged for testing for all symptomatic clinical staff treating patients at the hospital per CDC guidelines. And that last metric is downward trend of COVID-19 cases among health workers calculated weekly. So we are in the green for four out of six of those. The the two that were still in the red, the two that we still haven't quite met yet, are downward trajectory of influenza-like illnesses reported within a 14-day period and downward trend of COVID-19 cases among healthcare workers calculated weekly. So I think that after things opened up overnight in Wisconsin, which was almost a month ago now, um, there was a fear that we would suddenly see all of these metrics go in the red or we would see huge spikes in cases. The reality is uh, epidemiologists said it would take four to five weeks after reopening to really be able to tell what happened because we have this lag in information. It takes a while for symptoms to present. It takes a while for people to then get tested and those testing results to come back and then those testing results to get reported. So there's, there's a process things go through. We are coming up this week on four weeks since that Supreme Court ruling. So really within the next week or so, we'll be able to tell if there was any kind of meaningful spike in cases after things reopened in Wisconsin. And I say reopened, it wasn't necessarily a flood of everyone going out to businesses. A lot of people still stayed home because consumer confidence in your ability to go out still remains low. Well, no, and in fact, if you if you look at the metrics that are tracked in terms of mobility, which we've heard a lot of controversy about how mobile phone data is being used, but it is giving a picture of overall mobility. And uh, one of the things you saw is that while uh, around that time there was an increase in mobility in Wisconsin, it wasn't a giant spike. It, it's been a, a gradual upward tick, and we are now at a level of mobility that's higher than we've been since this whole thing started, but still well below what would be normal. We're still a good 20 or 30 percent below what would be normal. So we're seeing more and more interaction. Now, mobility doesn't necessarily mean people are coming in close contact and hugging and high fiving. Right. And and shaking hands. But it does mean they're moving more. We're getting out in public. We're going to stores. We're going out to parks. We're doing things. Uh, More people are going back to work and getting into the workplace. So there's been an increase. And, yeah, there's going to be a lag before we see some of that. Uh, some of the results of that, whether or not that leads to increases. But when you talk about these metrics, the two that are still in the red, even if you look at those, there is a downward trajectory according to the the graphs that are shown on the state website. But uh, at least according to the way they calculate this, it's not yet statistically significant, meaning it has to last over that 14-day period in a way that they can say there is a less than 5% chance that this is random. And, and we haven't quite gotten there. And it, th- that's a great point, Brian, because the, the data on any given day uh, doesn't necessarily give us the full picture of what's happening. So that's why you 
see that the criteria here is over a 14-day period because that's been uh, decided that that period of time can help us see whether something is actually a trend instead of a fluke. So, you know, for example, for the first time in about a month this week, we had a day where uh, we had no new COVID-19 deaths reported. That doesn't mean that it's okay, great, COVID's over. That was one day. We need to see what happens over a few days. Now, what we have seen as a trend is a decline in the number of people hospitalized for COVID-19 and uh, the tr- the percentage of people who are testing positive has stayed pretty low. It's hovered around 2 or 3%. That doesn't mean that COVID-19 is gone. Like you said, Brian, even though more people are starting to move around, it's still with limitations. And you have a lot of these big summer events that have been canceled. COVID-19 is, according to the epidemiologists, will continue to spread until there's a vaccine. The question is, what can we do to limit that spread. And that's bringing about a lot of questions, not just about what happens this summer. I think a lot of people have uh, come to the realization that with things being canceled, they'll have to adjust their expectations for what the summer will look like. But in the fall, when flu season tends to ramp up, what are things going to look like then? Uh, New York Times just did an article where they talked to hundreds, literally hundreds, of epidemiologists and ask them, okay, when can we do these things like flying or giving someone a hug or getting together with another family for a social gathering? What's the time frame on that? And these epidemiologist answers varied a lot, but they said for most of these things, we are at least three months, if not a year out from being able to resume these normal activities. Now, some epidemiologists took issue with calculating this in terms of months because there's so much that we still don't know and we don't know how things are going to adjust and they don't really like looking at it in terms of a, a frame of time or of what else is happening in the community and what our testing capabilities are. But, you know, it. I think it's it still hasn't hit a lot of us myself included, Brian, that we are at least a year out from doing some of these uh, previously normal activities. The uh, One of the places that we've been watching closely for metrics, for actual numbers and counts, is the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IMHE. And they publish, if you're a data nerd, it's a great place to go because they publish a <laughs> lot is. of charts and a lot of information. And what I found actually interesting, right now you can look at that site and see all sorts of Uh, slicing and dicing of data with maps that are very impressive over time that show what's happened with deaths, what's happened with infections, what's happened with testing. Um, But what has been interesting, and you can't see this by looking at it today, but if you've been watching it over time, those graphs and the shapes of them have changed dramatically because this is so new that they were making essentially calculated, educated guesses that have changed significantly over time. And, And if you looked at a lot of these uh, graphs, you know, in say late March or early April, they showed a spike and then a return back down to earth in terms of, uh, you know, you, some of the shapes of these curves would be way up high, then back down to zero by the beginning of May or by mid-May or maybe by the beginning of June, as though coronavirus was by then going to be gone. 
And now those maps or those graphs don't look quite that way. They look like they've come back down gradually. And then there's sort of some uncertainty out into the future. Will they go back up? Will they stay the same? Will they slowly go down? But none of these graphs return back down to zero. I think there's a recognition that this thing's here to stay. The question is, to, at what level and, and how do we interact with it until, for instance, there is a vaccine or until we know more about are we going to just be living with this thing long term? The one graph that really stands out to be the most is the one that shows both the daily counts. And I'm looking at the state of Wisconsin only mm -hmm. the daily counts of confirmed infections and the daily counts of testing. Because if you just look at the number of infections, and it's easy to report that every day there's another 200 or 300 cases in the state of Wisconsin, and those numbers really haven't changed. In fact, sometimes you look at it and there's another 500 cases, and it's a new record. That just happened uh, last week, I believe it was, or maybe within the last week or so that Wisconsin had a new daily record count of new cases. But if you look long term, those numbers are fairly consistent over the last two months. Then you look at the tests, and that graph has gone through the roof. The number of daily tests in Wisconsin is now well over 8,000, approaching 9,000 per day, whereas back in early April, there were maybe 1,000 or 2,000 tests a day. So that's why that we've talked about, Amanda, that percentage is so important. Because if you test 9,000 people and 300 turn out positive, that's very different from testing 1,000 people and 300 coming out positive. Absolutely. And and you remind me of a point that I think is worth stressing because we hear from a lot of people who say, well, these models don't tell us anything. They've been wrong because they keep changing. Th that's not how models work. Models are supposed to change. It it's kind of like uh, you know, when you hear uh, one of our meteorologists giving the forecast for seven days out, right? They're taking all the information they have, they're they're plugging it in, and they're saying, what does this yield? Well, now when we're three days out, we have more information, we're plugging it in, and the result might be different. So the forecast might change. And that's kind of how these models work. So at the very beginning when this hit, we had very little data about the virus. And now that we know more, and now that we can see, okay, here's what's happened when people were social distancing, and here's what happened when people started to emerge from their homes, we have that information to keep putting in the model. So the model has changed. The models will continue to change. That's the way they work. So yes, there's information they can tell us, but we always need to be careful of the context that we're giving when we are reporting that information because it's not um, it, it's not an unchangeable thing. It's actually very malleable. Well, and, and the weather is a good analogy, but imagine, in fact, if a whole new type of cloud formation and, and storm system came to be one year that had never existed right. before, and we wanted Tom Wax to tell us, well, what's going to happen with that new cloud formation and storm system a week, a month, or two months from now? That That's how difficult this can be with, with data that's just coming in for the first time. Um, I'm looking at, as I, I mentioned to you, the state of Wisconsin, I talked about mobility, and the IMHE graph for mobility uh, over time is, is interesting, too, because we all know that it was the Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision uh, to end safer at home that resulted in a lot of businesses very quickly opening up and discussions about whether or not that was going to lead to a surge or a spike in cases. What's interesting to me, and I hadn't even noticed this until right now, is that if you look at mobility data, 
because of Wisconsin winters being so cold and the weather being so rainy or, or snow or whatever it might be, we're generally, our, our, our mobility is pretty low in the winter compared to the summertime. And, and at the lowest, according to this graph, the lowest we got in, in late March was about 50% below normal. But what's interesting to me is about mid-April, April 12th, the graph starts to rise rapidly. And by early May, we're up to only 32% below normal. And that was before the state Supreme Court order. So you'd already seen a dramatic increase, or at least a substantial, I don't know if I could, would want to say dramatic, but a substantial increase in mobility throughout the month of April, probably because the weather started warming up. People are getting outside. Now, maybe that mobility is just people out riding bikes and taking walks with their families and their dogs, sure. which is healthy and may not be all that risky. But this data does at least track that movement. You do then see a flattening through the beginning of May and then about the time around May 13th, which I think when, when was the date of the Supreme Court decision? It was right around that time. Yes. May 14th, maybe. Um, I, I'm not sure about the exact date off the top of my head, but right around then, then you see another spike and another surge of about 10 percent, maybe well, seven or eight percent. And now we're up to about 23 percent as of today uh, or yesterday or whenever the latest data was calculated, uh, about 23 percent below our usual mobility. So we're not up to where we would be typically this time of year, but we are higher than we were. I guess the reason I point all of this out is in looking at this graph, the, the increase in mobility alone was greater throughout the month of April than it was when the Supreme Court decision happened. And so, the, as you mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court decision didn't necessarily result in everything opening up at once. It seems to me perhaps that the weather is a greater factor, at least in Wisconsin, but mobility doesn't track closeness doesn't track how closely we're interacting and i suppose if you're inside a hair salon or a or restaurant um the contact is going to be closer than if you're out at the park right. walking your dog so so for example as it's been getting warmer uh, my husband uh my daughter and i we have a state parks pass this year and so we've been going to various state parks to get out to hike to do other things. Um, my husband and I yesterday went kayaking. That was probably a great increase in mobility, um, but we're not around other people when we're doing that. And so um, it, it will it will be interesting to see how things continue to unfold because uh, doctors have been the first to say for the sake of your mental health, for the sake of your physical health, you need to get that activity. And a lot of that involves being outside, but there's there's a way to do that that's safe. But there are a lot of unknowns about what happens at the end of summer, at the beginning of fall, uh, whether we have a second wave of all of this. That's a phrase we've heard a lot over the last uh, several months, that second wave. And we just, we don't know where things are going to go, but sometimes there can be a misconception that okay, things are going down. It means the virus is gone. And the reality is every expert I've spoken to about this has said this virus is going to linger until there's a vaccine. So how do we make sure it doesn't keep spreading? Well, and we talked at the very top of this about sort of the, the, the strange dichotomy of things that are still being canceled and life not being the same. And yet many people's activities are sort of quickly going back to uh, a, a more normal uh, lifestyle. I was in Lake Geneva over the weekend, and uh, and was I, I marveled at the fact that there were. And we've heard this is there's been national coverage of the uh, of the beach there being jam packed with people. Um, interestingly enough, they apparently limited the number of people who could be on the beach because what I noticed was, 
an extremely long line on Saturday of people lined up to get into the public beach. So while they were limiting the number of people who could be on the beach and it was still pretty darn crowded, there were people standing, you know, there was no social distancing. The people were standing very, very close to one another in a very long line down the sidewalk that stretched a good quarter of a mile of people just waiting to get to the beach. And then if you go to the shops in town, you know, that that was jam packed. But what I found really interesting was all of the shop owners there have signs up encouraging or requiring the use of masks inside the store. But when you get outside on the sidewalks, very few people were wearing masks and they were walking in large groups. They were congregating in large groups. Really, if you if you looked at what was going on in that resort community, there wasn't much of a recognition outside of those signs in the stores. There was a pandemic at all. Life was back to normal. Um, and it, that strikes me that whatever these numbers and whatever these charts say, so much of this is about human behavior. Are people buying into the fact that there's still a concern or are they just ready to say, I'm done with this, let's go back to life? And that will have a big impact on what happens next. Well, and especially as we get new information about the virus. So a few weeks ago, uh, it, it was announced that the virus does not linger on surfaces as much as we previously thought. And just recently, WHO announced that the spread from asymptomatic people, people who are not showing symptoms, is rare. And so and huge. I, I think when you take that, it's very easy to say, OK, I'm fine then, because you have a lot of people um, who are young, who are healthy, who aren't necessarily worried that they will get it, but they're worried about giving it to their grandparents or, you know, other people they love who are in that at risk category. So you hear this announcement that the spread from asymptomatic people is rare, and that can give you a sense of comfort. But Rare does not mean non-existent. And again, there's so much we're still learning about this virus. And there's been so many things that have been, um, you know, turned on its head. And we get contradictory information that, you know, what we're getting now, months from now, is it going to be true? Who knows? So, well, and that, But that, that, that announcement from WHO could really be influential. And maybe whether that's for better or for worse, the, the, it seems to me anyway, the biggest concern and the biggest reason for all of the social distancing and extra care that's been taken uh, with the healthy portion of the public is that asymptomatic spread has been a concern. Because if you only had to limit people who were symptomatic that's from having contact, it's much, much easier to target. And then people who are healthy could go about their business as usual. But when you know there is the chance of asymptomatic spread, it means it doesn't matter how good you feel you might have it and we have to be extra cautious. So that really seems to me with COVID-19 to be the greatest key to how much we've had to limit our own lives is the fear of asymptomatic spread. Right. So the question is now, how do public health departments react to this? How do they do they refocus uh, their efforts? Do they try to really target those symptoms? And that's something we're going to be keeping an eye on over the next few weeks. I think the key is going to be making sure that these issues don't just disappear from the public conversation because the decisions that are being made right now, they impact our way of life, they impact our health, they impact the economy. And so it's something that we as journalists can't lose sight of, even though there's a lot of other things, a lot of other very important things going on right now. Well, and I think that's why I say looking at metrics is so important because 
while you're hearing news of things like, well, maybe asymptomatic spread is rare, or at least not as common as we thought. And we're hearing reports out of Italy and now other places where doctors are saying that they're seeing evidence that perhaps the uh, the, the viral load coming from COVID-19 is lessening, and they're wondering if perhaps it's losing its steam. Those all sound like positive things. But if you look at the numbers, the, the, the graphs haven't dropped off to zero, and they haven't even dropped off to a minimal amount. There's still a significant amount of disease out there, and we don't know what's going to happen, especially come this fall. I think there's still a great concern that when the, the warm summer sun has left us and we start to head back into our our usual fall lives. If schools resume uh, in-person classes, um, what's going to happen come this fall? And it's very different to talk about shutting things down again. Sort of doing this once was hard enough, but if things have to shut down again, I think it's going to be a much more difficult thing. And don't forget, that will all be happening in the lead-up to a presidential election that's already extremely contentious. So you're not just going to have the the metrics and and the and the science you're going to have the politics at a fever pitch and we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of open record every tuesday and thursday as we cover the covid 19 pandemic the protests other things if there's a topic you want us to discuss here on the podcast or an issue you think we should investigate please send us an email at the investigators at fox.com and note the new email address. It, there's no longer a fox6now.com. It's investigators at fox.com. Thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. Thanks for listening to Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire and for Brian Polson. We'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Thursday. Mm-hmm.